Thank you so much. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus provided for us uh, instructions on how to pray. And when you take a look at that passage, you really see that you can kind of divide it up into two major sections. Uh, the first being the manner in which we should pray, and the second half being the matters for which we should pray. Last week, we talked the manners in which we should pray, the manner in which we should pray, and we saw that Jesus instructed us that we should pray with sincerity of heart, that we should pray in secrecy, uh, meaning that, uh, that, that we, should be, uh, we should have our undivided attention upon God. He, uh, we saw that we should pray with simplicity, that is, that we don't have to put on or try to be somebody that we're not ultimately who we are, but rather just come to him simply and making requests to him. Uh, ultimately, w- the whole point of that was to, to understand that when we come to him, when we come to converse with God in prayer, that we need to be singularly focused, both our minds and our hearts, on God and God alone. That was kind of the manner in which we're to come. Now, with that understood, now the question is, okay, what are we supposed to pray for? That's the matters of prayer, and it's what Jesus answers for, uh, for us here in verses 9 through 12. Uh, these are verses that historically we know or have referred to as the Lord's Prayer, which is kind of an interesting title because Jesus himself could have never actually prayed the words of these prayers for, him, for himself. Why? Because in it, he instructs us to pray to God to forgive us of our sins, right? As, as, you know, and to forgive others, we get that, he can do that, but he has no need of his own sins being forgiven because he was sinless. And because of that, there have been some who have suggested that a better name of this prayer ought to be the disciples' prayer, because it's what he uses to be able to teach his disciples both then and now how we ought to pray. Now, throughout Christian history, we know that people have memorized this prayer, right? Many of us have memorized it, and they've quoted it verbatim. And even though I don't think there's anything inherently evil with that, I don't think it's wrong to memorize Scripture and quote Scripture, and and that would apply to this as well. I don't think it would be wrong for all of us to gather together and maybe say this prayer together. I don't think there's anything, again, inherently evil or sinful about that. I would suggest, however, that that, I don't think that was Jesus' intention when he provided this for us. In fact, I think the purpose was he's providing us with a model, and that's, that's clear by his own words. In his own words, right before he begins into the prayer, he says, pray then like this. The word like is what's important there. He doesn't say pray this. He says pray like this, which means pray in a similar way to that, what, what I'm showing you here. And so it serves as a model for us to learn how we ought to pray. And, you know, it's interesting because in my studies, I found that there are some people that would object to that statement that we learn how to pray and we need to be taught how to pray. Some suggest that you never, nobody needs to learn how to pray and there's no wrong way to pray. You just open up your mouth, you open up your heart, and you just let the words fly. And then that's your prayer to God. And and what I would suggest is, I think I understand what they mean, but what I, what I think is that Jesus is teaching otherwise. Um, he, he, he decided to be able to take the time out of his three years of public ministry to sit down with his disciples and say, hey guys, I want to teach you how to pray. I think that's significant. And not only is it significant that Jesus did it, but it was also significant that the Holy Spirit saw it to move the writers of the New Testament to record this very teaching, not only for them, but for believers for centuries later, for generations later, for you and I to be able to learn how to pray. Remember something, 
This whole series is not just to try to get you simply to pray, and not simply to get you to pray just more, but for you and I to pray in a more God-honoring way, in a way that would bring God glory, in a way that would be personally transformational for you, and that would bring about radical change in the world around us. Do you understand? It's more than just, hey, I need to pray more. And so what God does is, I think he does all of those things right here in his instructions. So what we're going to do is we're going to, I don't feel like you're with me. Are y'all with me? This, are you just cold, your face frozen? Okay. Um, I just want to let you know, there's probably not going to be any humor today. Okay. Just, you know, sometimes when you leave, you work all week, you slave in the word, breaking down the Greek and the grammar, and you get done and you leave. And they're like, oh, that was a really funny thing you said. All right. That's so depressing. All right. Uh, here's the idea. Uh, there's probably not going to be a whole lot funny, so it may not be real gripping. All right. But here's the thing is, I'm okay with that because we get to preach about God today. All right. Here's what we always want to focus on. But there's two things we want to see this week, two things we want to focus on next week. Today, we want to look at, first of all, the address to God and the worship to God. And then next week, we're going to cover two more things. But this is what we see within this prayer. Two parts, uh, the address to God. Let's look at that first. Look how he begins his prayer. He says, our Father in heaven. Now, the word Father there uh, is used in the New Testament and Old Testament. Sometimes it is used to describe God as the creator of all people. In other words, all people get their origin in this heavenly Father of ours, okay? And we, we see that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 19. Malachi asks the question, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And so you understand that. He uses the word Father to describe him being the source and the origin of all life, whether a believer or an unbeliever. But let me suggest this. Whenever the Bible uses the word Father in that way, it's always the minority use. The, major, the vast majority of the time that it uses the word father, it's referring to the special relationship between a born-again believer and our heavenly father that was only made possible through repenting and placing their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so we see this in John chapter 1 and verse 12. We read there, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So in a spiritual sense, in a very real way, the only true children of God in the world are those who have come to him and been adopted by him through the completed work of Jesus Christ. You said, then, who is everybody else? Is they're not his, are they not his children? Well, according to Jesus Christ and his stern warning, he calls them in John chapter 8, verse 44, those outside of faith in Christ, children of the devil. And so here he says, look, when we address him, understand we're coming to him as our spiritual father. So he lets us know who it is that we're addressing, but he also lets us know where he's residing, where he's located. He says, in heaven. Now, the word heaven is used in several different ways in the Bible as well. Sometimes the Bible refers, when it uses heaven, it speaks of just really the sky above us, the clouds and, and, and the birds. Sometimes it's referring to the celestial bodies, including the moon and the stars and, and, and the sun. And then sometimes, as it's being used here, it refers to the abode of God, the dwelling place of God, a place that has no limits and has absolutely no boundaries. So here's how he begins the prayer, focusing on our Father who is in heaven, right? Now, the question is, and if you're reading the Word of God, every student of the Word of God, here's a question I begin to ask, so, so what? 
Why is Jesus beginning a prayer like this? Why is it so significant that he's, that he's telling us, pray, Father who art in heaven? Well, here's why. First of all, why does he use it? Well, Martin Luther believed that it was to keep us from thinking only of ourselves and from immediately jumping right into the things that we want from him. What Martin Luther knew is that we are sinfully self-centered people, yes? Yes, you are. Okay, yes, you are. Just, I'm going to give you the answer, yes. When you wake up in the morning, the first thing on your mind is you and what you want. Now, I'm, I'm included in this, by the way, okay? It's not like you then me um, by myself, right? I think of me. I think of what I want. I think of how I feel this morning. How do I feel this morning? My neck is sore this morning, right? What do I want? I want food this morning. Hey, I would like to go back to bed this morning. Hey, I'm running late to go to work today. Hey, I need to get out of here because my house is crazy, right? So you got all these things going on, and it's all me, and it's all what it ultimately is that I want and, and here's what Jesus is saying, and I, I want to say this in the most loving, curdling, nurturing way. If I could just hug you all, I would. Here's what God says. It's not all about you. And our problem is, our single great, one of our single greatest problems apart from sin, and here's the basis of it is our pride, is we think it is. And so what he's trying to ultimately get us to say is, hey, listen, I need to recalibrate your heart. You need to recalibrate your mind because your mind is all about on you and what it is that you want. I need you to recalibrate yourself so it's focused on God and God alone and who he is. So when we open up and we realize who it is that we're addressing and, and where he's from, it recalibrates us in three ways. Let me just give these three ways for you. I didn't add them up here. I'm making you do some of the work. Okay, all right, here it is, three things. First of all, it gives us a sense of confidence. When we recognize that it's a father, a spiritual father that we're addressing, we're not addressing a boss. We're not addressing a tyrant. We're not addressing a taskmaster. We're addressing a loving father, and, which means that you don't have to set up an appointment. <laughs> Isn't that great? You know, can I get an appointment with him? Well, you know, you're six months out, you know, and, and that's a difficult thing. He says, no, as a child, you come to me, and you can come to me any time that you want to be able to come. No appointment necessary. And not only can you come to me, but I want you to come to me. I want to hear from you and hear what's ultimately on your heart. This is, this is who God, this is, this is the idea of confidence. We don't have to be scared to be able to go to him. We're his children. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I used to serve at another church. It was much larger. And, um, and I, was, I was just... I was on staff, I was a youth pastor at this church, and, and uh, the pastor was so busy, had so many things going on, that everybody, everybody had to set an appointment to be able to see him, including the staff. So you couldn't just knock on the door and go, hey, you know what's going on? And again, nothing wrong with it. God was immensely, immensely busy. And so I set an appointment with the pastor, my boss, and went up and went to his secretary and said, um, I have an 11 o'clock appointment with the, the pastor. And she goes, okay, let me see, let me see, let me see. Yep, there you are right there. Why don't you have a seat? And so I go over and I have a seat. And as I'm sitting there for about five minutes, this little boy comes walking in, popping gum, blip, 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 popping gum. He walks right past the secretary. Secretary doesn't say anything. He beelines right to the door, opens it. And as soon as he opens the door, I'm like, dude, this kid's getting whooped, right? In just about a moment, he opens the door and he goes, hey, dad, hey, son, come on in. Little boy goes in there, no reception area, no appointment. Why? Huge distinction between him and me. He's the son, I'm not. 
So this is what he says. When we're coming and addressing the heavenly father, he is our father, wants to hear from us. We need not be afraid. Secondly, how does it get our hearts right? It gives us a sense of humility. Did you notice that he uses the word our father? He's not just your father, all right? He's, he's countless numbers of hundreds of millions of people's father. So God is not just looking and caring for you. He's looking and caring for people and has children. From Look, we, we brag about how big the families are, and it's like astounding. I don't know if we're bragging or having compassion. I don't know what we're doing. We look around, and we're like, dude, such huge families everywhere. It is nothing compared to God's family and how many children he has, right, that he's looking after, that he wants to commune with, that he wants to be in fellowship with. And so what it does is it causes again gives us a little bit of humility that even though i can come to him i understand that he is a god in heaven over hundreds of millions of people doesn't mean that you're any less a child but there's an essence of humility there that just sits there and goes god's doing a whole lot i'm not the only child that he's looking after there's a third aspect and that it gives us a sense of obedience a son should have a natural kind of understanding that what his father says he's supposed to be doing, right? I said supposed to be. Should should supposed to be there. And that there should be this natural affection and a ra- natural recognition that this father has authority over me, therefore I need to obey. Because if he doesn't, Hebrews chapter 11, he will very lovingly, because he loves me, he will discipline me for my own good. And this is the Father. So here's how it is. Yes, we approach. He's available. We can go to him. We can have confidence that we see him. But we have to go humbly and obediently to him. We're submitting ourselves to him. You get that picture? Now, that's a lot. And I would just say already, I'm not so sure that's the way that we're entering into our prayer. I think it's more like a, like a drive-by shooting, right? Hey, guys, and, and, and we're out. But what we're beginning already is just by acknowledging, taking a couple minutes to acknowledge who this is that we are addressing, it begins to calibrate our hearts and our minds, and it begins to make a difference on what it is that we pray. Now, notice the second part of this prayer The first part, he says, is an address to God. The second part is worship to God. Worship to God. Now, he begins here, hallowed be your name. Now, it's a little hard to get your arms around that idea of hallowed, right? Because, and I'll tell you why, because we don't use it a whole lot in our modern vernacular. When you leave today, you know, it's not like, hey, what'd you do at church? Oh, we were hallowing the Lord. We're hallowing him. You were howling at the Lord at the church? No, not, not howling, hallowing God at the... We, we don't normally use that particular word to describe things. So it's hard for us to understand, but what is it that he's saying? Well, I think, I think we have to understand, first of all, that a name had far more... It, it, I'm sorry, let me, let me back up. This word, hallowed, literally means to make holy. It means to make holy. And so what does that specifically mean? I think it means a couple things. I think one is we have to understand that names during the time of Christ were far more significant than what names are for us today. Names for us are primarily ways of of identifying people and distinguishing people. It doesn't really say a whole lot about what that person is like. We don't really think about even what the meaning of people's names are. I I think we really kind of name them because they sound cool, right? You know, there's Judfid. 
I love Judfid. That's cool. That's, that's what I'm going to name my kid, Judfid. We don't really stop and think that Judfid may mean something that that kid doesn't want to be, like it might mean camel pimple or something like that. And we don't really stop and think that, okay, I just named my son camel pimple because I thought that it sounded good, all right? We don't do that. But in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, during the time of Christ, names had great significance because the name was a correlation to the very nature of that person. So when you referred to the name of the person, you were referring to the, to the person themselves. So when he sits back and he says, listen, pray, hallowed be thy name, he's saying that we are to glorify, revere, and exalt the name of God, which is the same thing as glorifying, exalting, and revering God himself. It expresses an aspiration that he who is holy will be seen to be holy and treated throughout his creation as holy. You see where we're beginning with our prayers? We're beginning with our prayers in the essence of saying, God, you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise because of who you are and because of what you have done. God, I pray that you will receive all of the glory that you are due. That's where we begin. So we begin not asking for things for ourselves. We begin in what? Worship. Worship is ascribing value to God. It's seeing who he is and then responding in an appropriate way to him. That's what worship is. And so how, do, how would we respond? I think two ways. First of all, when we recognize and we pray for him to be glorified, revered, and exalted, we begin to understand that that begins with us. We begin to understand, hey, God, if you're going to be glorified, revered, and exalted, then it needs to begin with me. God, help me to glorify you in all that I do. Help me to exalt you. Help me to revere you for the holy God that you are. And, and, and God, help me to love you. That's why Jesus commands us. He says, be holy as God is holy. Uh, to, to live this way means to live in a way that is consistent with the nature of God. That we should live pure lives. That we should, we should live holy lives. We should live lives full of grace. We should live God, lives full of mercy. And we're praying for this. God, let me live in a way that is consistent with your nature so that you would ultimately be glorified. Martin Luther said that all believers in Christ have God's name put upon them and they are to live consistent with that name. That's how we glorify God, through us. So the first prayer is, God, may you be glorified in all things beginning with me. So, there's, so, so that's where it starts. Then it's not only be glorified in me, but then I begin to pray, God, let you be glorified in others. God has called us not only to, to, to just harbor God unto ourselves, but to be able to share him. And listen to this. God is worth more glory and deserves more glory than just from me, but from all people. Would you agree? From all people. And so what he says is, as I begin to live out this life, if I begin to live and demonstrate what the glory of God is, and I begin to share the gospel as God has called me to do, then other people see that glory, not mine, but the reflection of his glory, and they want to be with him. They want to worship him. They want to know him. Are, are you getting this? They, they want to worship the same God. It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So do you get it? God, I want to start. I want you to be glorified. I want you to be revered in all things, not only in me, but in other people. You know, one of the greatest ways to make his name holy, to glorify him and revere him. Let me just add this third thing, is just to be satisfied in him. 
just to be satisfied with him. I wrestled with this all week. God, am I really just satisfied with you? And I don't mean complacent. I don't mean apathy. You guys know what that is, right? Well, he just doesn't seem to care. He seems to be okay. But there's a difference between being apathetic and complacent and then just being absolutely fully satisfied just with God and just with Jesus himself. How many times do we sit there and even in our prayers, God, give me this, give me that, grant me that, please help me with this, please do. And we're adding all these things. Is there a part in a prayer that we just ever go to him and just go, God, I don't have anything to ask for because truthfully, I'm just satisfied with you, with you. I don't think there's anything more glorifying than that. Nothing more glorifying than that. Just be satisfied with him. Here's the second part or the next part of, of this worship. He then prays, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Now, with the idea of the coming of the kingdom, not trying to be too complicated, but it is pretty complicated, to be honest with you. Some of it, it can be. The idea of God's coming kingdom, this is what we call as a principle or theological principle of already but not yet. And what we mean by that is, in one sense, the kingdom of God has already come, right? And he reigns and rules over the hearts of God's people. We recognize him as being Lord over us. In another sense, it's not yet. It's already but not yet that there are billions of people around the world who have not submitted to his lordship, who have not recognized his his authority at all. And so what we're doing is when we're coming, we're praying for this world in which we live, a prayer of lordship of all people overall. There's two elements, three elements. First of all, there's a personal element. Again, it begins with me, but then it goes beyond me. It begins with me in this understanding. Remember, here's how, if you haven't caught it yet, here's how the worship goes. God, show me who you are. I see who you are. Now I'm going to respond in light of who you are. That's worship, okay? And that's prayer. He's, he's, He's revealing himself. I'm being reminded of all of these things. And now I need to respond to him in an appropriate way. And what is that? Well, we begin to pray, Lord, be Lord over all of me. Over my mind, over my heart, over my emotions, over my desires, over my actions. God, take all of me. Help me to more understand your authority. Help me to more identify it and live it out in every aspect of my life. Help me recognize your rule in my family, in my job, in my finances, in my fun, everything. You lording over that by me submitting to the word of God and what you say about those different areas. That's one way for me to pray for the kingdom to come. There's a personal essence. But there's also a missional essence. And the missional essence is that we're praying that he will reign in the world that he himself has made. When Adam and Eve were all by themselves, they'd submitted fully to it. We lived in a perfect world. They blew it by doing what? No longer submitting to his authority and his lordship, but doing things that seemed to be right in their own eyes. And they begin to do whatever it is that they ultimately want to do. And the whole world falls into chaos. And the whole world from that point on is saturated, even like today, with sin, death, pain, and sorrow. Do you see it around you? And what is the cause of it? The rebellion of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we think, and the world keeps trying to figure out, how do we get rid of sin? How do we get people to stop shooting each other? How do we get people to stop killing each other? How do we do all of this? And everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And what they keep thinking is, and this is, this is what is so messed up about sin, so deceitful with sin, is you keep doing more sin thinking that's going to make it better. And what he ultimately tells us is, no, sin's not the answer. Submission in lordship is the answer. And that's what we begin to pray 
That's what we begin to pray for those around us. So it's a missional aspect. We pray at Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11 that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You got it? There's a third part, not only personal, not only missional, but there's a third part. There's an eschatological element here. The word come is in the aorist tense. And what it speaks of is a sudden instantaneous coming. So we're not only praying for lordship over our our life, and we're not only praying for the hearts and lives of people to embrace the rule of Christ through salvation. Listen to this. We're actually praying for Jesus Christ's second coming for him to actually come. That's That's kind of the point here. Pray that he will come. All right. Now, Here's, I think, where we get, have a hard time with this. Because if you're not yet married, that's difficult. <laughs> right? If you're, not yet, if you're not yet have kids yet, yeah, if you're in high school, you're like, hey, man, I'm cool with the lordship over me. I'm cool with the lordship of the world. But I'm really not hoping you come yet. Uh, I've got the prom at the end of this year. If you could just come at the end of that, right? Y'all look so spiritual. Every one of you have thought it right? Every one of you thought it. Let me get married first. Let me have kids first. Let me get the car that I want first. And then you come. Now, I'm not going to beat you up because I'm in the same place, right? You're like, well, I want you to come, but maybe not right now, right? And so, but the problem is, what's the problem with all that? The problem is we really don't understand what is to come. We don't understand that the greatest thing in this world is rubbish from Jesus Christ compared to Jesus Christ and knowing him. It is rubbish. The Bible teaches us, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. When we begin to get gripped by that, we pray, your kingdom come. Let it come. The only way you would pray for God delay is not for me to go to the prom and not for me to reach retirement, but rather so the same reason God himself delays is so that others might come to faith in him so that he would receive even more glory. Next. Wow, we're almost done. And you guys only slept through half of it. Congratulations. Last part. Here we go. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, for me, this is probably one of the hardest, one of the most difficult parts of this first section to explain. And the reason for that is because there's, there's so much confusion when it comes to not only prayer, but even to the will of God, knowing what the will of God is. And so oftentimes what people will say is, hey, man, what's, and maybe you've thought this before, what's really the use of praying when God's will is going to be done anyway? I mean, does it really change? What that demonstrates for you and I when we say things like that is that there is a misunderstanding, I'm not being harsh, but there's a misunderstanding of both the will of God and how prayer ultimately works. So let me try to work through that just for a moment. There are different aspects of the will of God. John MacArthur lays it out this way. Other people lay it out different ways, but let me, let me try to share it to you. There is what we call God's will of purpose. You can write this down, three wills. Here we go. God's will of purpose, okay? Now, what that talks about is God's ultimate sovereign plan for the universe. 
That means that God had planned from the beginning to send his only son to die so that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group would ultimately what come to faith in him. There would be, an, uh, there would be a, a final judgment, and then there would be a new heaven and a new earth. Guess what? That's going to happen. You hear what I'm saying? Whether you pray for that or not pray for that, that's going to ultimately happen. It doesn't matter, okay, all right? I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter as far as our prayer life. It's going to happen no matter what. We can't keep it from happening. We can't make it happen, all right, in our timing. So that's, that's what we mean by that. Second is the will of desire. There's a will of desire. This is different than the will of, uh, this is different than uh, the will of purpose in that the will of desire is not always fulfilled. And I want to be very careful here. It's examples would be like when Jesus stands on the mountain and he's looking over Jerusalem and he calls out to them, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. He wanted them to come. You say, how do you know he wanted them to come? Because he said it, all right? He goes, I wanted you to come. And he says, but you did not. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, who, who, who desires all people, speaking of that, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Are all people going to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? No. This is what we call, in essence, the will of desire. There's a third aspect, and that is the will of command. And this command is specifically his will for believers exclusively. And this is what we find in the word of God when he's commanding us to go into all nations, when he's calling us to be holy as he is holy. All of these commands, this is what we call the will of command for us. But yet at the same exact time, his will for us in this essence, at least here and now, doesn't always come true, does it? If so, we would be all perfect. He says, don't lie. We're tempted and we lie. Sometimes on accident, sometimes in a moment of weakness, sometimes blatantly even. A Christian can, and it demonstrates our need for grace of God. And so there are these different aspects. So what does he mean then when when Jesus tells us to pray for God's will to be done? Well, I think the key is, is that phrase when he says, on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that gives us the answer. There's only one place that God's will is fully done in every aspect. The aspect of his purpose, the aspect of his desire, and the aspect of his commands. Where is that? In heaven. And so we are praying, God, let your will in every aspect be done here on earth as it is ultimately in heaven. Do you catch that? And so these are the things that we're praying for. We're praying when Jesus says, hey, pray to send laborers out into the harvest because the harvest is full and plenty, right? What is Jesus saying? In a way, he's saying, hey, listen, you need to pray for this so that people will go. And here's the idea, and we're going to understand this later in our idea of prayer. You Them going is contingent upon you praying, and that is a part of God's sovereign plan. Some things he will do by himself in the interview, but there are some things that will will not be done unless we ask. You have not because you ask not. Do you get that? So we're praying for them to go, but then we're also praying for what? For our own holiness. God, rid me of the sin. God, I want to honor you. I want to be holy. I I want to love you with all that I am, and I want you to lord over my life, and I want to be completely satisfied with you. Let me ask you this. I mean, will we ever arrive there apart from those prayers? Yes, I know when we die, but I'll know this. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. Those are important things that we need to be praying for, and it's what we mean when we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
What's amazing to me about this whole thing when I got through here? You know, I've had people say, you ever have that phrase, and I always feel uncomfortable with that, that, that phrase when people go, well, all we can do now is pray. You know, it's just like, it's like, everyone just give up. Everyone just go home and just pray. You know, it's so defeatist, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it just sound kind of defeatist to you? It does to me. I think I know what people mean by that, but all we can do is pray. And I've said it again. I'm like, ah, I wish I had a different way of saying that. It just sounds like such a downer. And, and, and what people say is, listen, prayer is not doing nothing. And what I found through breaking down this prayer so far, you know what prayer is? It's at least hard work. You know, anything that you do well is hard work. When we're teaching people how to study through the word of God and study it verse by verse through the word of God, I tell people this is hard work. And there are many people that sit there and go, man, I'm just not going to do that work. Then you will never reap the benefits of that word and the study of God's word without the work. You'll just never do it. You can't absorb it. You can't sleep on it. You can't, you, you, you can't do anything. You have to be a student of the word of God. And let me say this. The same with prayer. The same with prayer is unless you work at it and spend time in it to mine out the pearls and the gold and the precious jewels that are within it. That prayer life will never go anywhere. It will never be fulfilling. It will never be life transforming. Let me say this last thing. Had you noticed that up to this point, he hasn't instructed us at all to ask for a new job, to ask for better health, to ask for a better 401k, to ask for a different president, to ask for for, for, you know, a betting hunting, hunting property, to ask for your husband to look better. Hasn't asked, any of those th- hasn't asked any of those things. The whole thing is about whom? God. The whole thing. And it's probably why I've so looked forward to this message, and I've actually said this to folks. I actually said, I'm so looking forward to preaching this message this week. I told my wife last night, yesterday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we are just standing there in the kitchen, and I looked across there, and I go, I can't wait to preach this. And I said, but you need to pray for me because my flesh is fighting with my spirit. And I, she said, why is that? And I said, because I get to preach and make much of God and let folks know that the answer to their problem and their greatest need is Christ. Let's give him and ascribe worth and glory to him and to him alone. Let's begin there. Let's begin there. Let's begin there. And I kept saying that to her. And she goes, well, why are you struggling with the flesh? And I said, because I know that on some people that's just going to fall short. For some, they're going to say, get to me stuff, get to, get to me stuff. And I don't, know what, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know, is, is that a lack of salvation or is that just being bogged down in sinful self? I don't know what that is. I just don't know. I, I just know that's not how it's supposed to be. I know after a message like this, what we should be doing, and look, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the blame that it could be boring and it could not be engaging, but it certainly is not bereft of God, right? And so my prayer is that when we leave, we sit there and our, our, our prayers are radically changed in the fact that we go, today, beginning today, I'm going to begin just with God and the worship of this God who I address as Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we come, we love you, we thank you, God.